morning, CCC. This morning, I'll be reading scripture from Matthew chapter 5, from verse 31 to 32, from the New International Version, and it reads, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The word of the Lord. And everybody is stunned into silence. And at home somewhere, somebody just spit out their coffee. I often wonder how the crowds responded to Jesus' teaching. Were there audible gasps when he would say something so jarring? We are in a series of messages we've called Living the Life. It's a study of the Sermon on the Mount. And in the sermon, Jesus touches on some incredibly real, often raw topics of his day. And 2,000 years later, they're still teaching and still instructing and still forming us as followers of Jesus. At TCC, we usually teach and preach our way through books of the Bible or extensive sections. Last year, we walked with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. This year, we're sitting at the feet of Jesus as he teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. And when we do this, we will undoubtedly come across difficult passages. Today is one of those. I admit to feeling incredibly inadequate and vulnerable. Volumes have been written by people far more intelligent than I am. But I come to you this morning from the perspective of a pastor's heart. As a pastor, I have the privilege of walking with people through some of their greatest joys, usually weddings. I was able to officiate three weddings this summer, which I think was the most I've ever done in in any one summer. And every one of them was unique, especially because of COVID. And every one of them was an incredible joy as a man and a woman pledged their love, their commitment, and their loyalty to one another. But as much as those are the greatest joys, I've also been walking with people through some of the deepest valleys. Usually, that is in the context of divorce. I've been, over the years, involved in some incredibly difficult situation. From one of my uh, very early memories of an associate pastor paying a visit with our senior pastor and some company executives to the home of a young wife with two small sons to inform her that her husband had been killed in a workplace accident. He left in the morning and would not be returning home for dinner to spending sleepless nights in an ER with an older lady whose husband had an aneurysm in her in, in his abdomen, and they were doing emergency surgery to see if they could save his life. But in my pastoral experience, nothing, and I mean nothing, has brought to me face to face with the brokenness of people more than when they face the reality of divorce in their lives. My first experience with divorce was, again, as a young youth pastor. A man whom I would call and considered a friend at the time called me one evening to ask me to come over and to stay with his two junior high-age children because he had just told them that he was leaving their mother and he asked her not to come home until he was gone. And he wanted me to stay with the children in the meantime. And since then, the stories and the situations have been varied and numerous. 
Relational brokenness is complicated and nuanced. Every situation is unique. But what they all have in common is deep pain, deep grief. The sense of loss involved is enormous for so many different reasons. And when children are involved, they are all that much more vulnerable. So to those of you who have experienced this, I can only say that I understand how deeply emotional and sensitive this subject is. And my intent is not at all to pour any salt into the wounds, but to perhaps help some who are listening here today to avoid some of those painful experiences. And to know this, that there is grace. We all walk in grace and we are all in need of grace. And so I pray that we would experience, if there's still the rawness of that, the healing touch and the power of Jesus to help us through those situations. I also know that many have been hurt by legalistic applications of what the Bible teaches about divorce. There's no question that walking with Jesus is not an easy pathway, but it is the pathway (coughs) to freedom and living life to the full. I believe the Bible reveals who God is and his heart for his people. And then the Bible, God lays out his very best for us. And so we always have to read it from that perspective. What is God's ideal? What is his best? And then how does my life align with it? And so this is an unavoidable, difficult subject. Not just because Jesus addresses it here in the Sermon on the Mount, But I believe it is important for those of us who are married to strengthen our convictions and our resolve around the marriage covenant that we have made. And for those of you who are single, to encourage you now to form convictions about this that will serve you well in the future. And one more thing. I know this is a long introduction, which is just going to mean I'm going to have less time at the end, but I think it's important to say this. And this piece might disappoint some of you, because you're wanting the answers. But I'm actually not going to take a deep dive into Jesus' teaching. Not because I don't think it's important, but because I think it's more important to spend the little time that I have to get really practical about the application that I think is absolutely critical in helping us to avoid divorce in the first place. And there's another practical reason as well. Because most commentators that I read in preparation for this message interpret these two verses here in Matthew chapter 5 in the context of Jesus addressing the same subject in other situations more fully. Namely, in Matthew chapter 19, 1 through 9, and in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And since I just preached on that passage in Mark back in February, I know it was pre-COVID days and it feels like an eternity, but it's not that far removed. And the message is still there on the internet. It's, uh, it's under the Walking with Jesus series and it's just called We Two Are One. And so again, I encourage you, Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12 February 9th, we two are one. And again, you'll just uh, hear a fuller explanation of some of Jesus' teaching on this matter. But when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, what I'm discovering is that the further along that we get in our study, the more I see a theme developing that runs throughout. 
I often thought of the Sermon on the Mount of just a series of independent thoughts, maybe kind of jumping from one thought to another. Maybe the way we might read Proverbs, just these kind of nuggets of wisdom all the way along. But now I'm beginning to discover the brilliance of Jesus in how he presented the sermon. He starts by addressing who we are, who we are called as followers of Jesus to be in that first part of the, of the sermon called the Beatitudes. And now we're getting into some of the very practical things that we do. These acts of deliverance, as we've referred to them, these very practical practices that we can engage in that are a vital part of, well, living the life that Jesus calls us to live. And what we are noting is that in each of these sections, Jesus presents essentially a three-point sermon. He starts by saying, you have heard, or it has been said, referring to an Old Testament law or how the Pharisees and the scribes would interpret it. And then he provides his own teaching that not only stands in stark contrast to what the Pharisees taught, but also he begins to diagnose this vicious cycle before ultimately presenting an act of deliverance. And so just to illustrate this, I want to just quickly review the last two messages on this so we can see this pattern. So in Matthew chapter 5, 21 to 26, we have Jesus first saying, you shall not murder. And so that was the traditional teaching. It was restating the sixth commandment, to which Jesus responds, but I say to you, anyone who is angry has already committed murder in, in his heart. And so this anger is what we talked about and how that just becomes this vicious vicious cycle because we're filled with resentment and bitterness and it just kind of explodes on other people if we don't deal with it. And so how do we deal with it? He says, be reconciled. In other words, you can't keep being angry. And so that is how you're delivered uh, in this situation. And last week, Pastor Adam walked us through verses 27 to 30. You shall not commit adultery. That's what you've heard. It's the traditional teaching. It's the seventh commandment. And we refer to that very clearly in the context of relational unfaithfulness. And there we read, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so in both instances, first with murder, then with adultery, Jesus makes the point that sin takes place before the action itself, in the thoughts and desires of the person. Now, it's, the sin is not the desire in and of, its, of, of itself. There's nothing wrong about the desire. Some of those are good and healthy and right. But the sin is, as Pastor Adam said last week, When we bend our will to our desire and entertain thoughts of having or experiencing that which isn't ours to have or experience. I thought that was brilliant. And this is the vicious cycle. When we keep longing for someone other than our spouse, we cross the line and break the seventh commandment. And it's this relational unfaithfulness that destroys relationships. And so the act of deliverance, as we discovered, is ultimately that we do whatever it takes to remove the very cause of our longing. And it calls us to radical obedience, and it might even mean taking drastic measures. And that brings us to, to the two verses that Joy read for us this morning. 
And uh, they're connected to these first two. And that's why I gave you that background, this issue of, of anger and being re- reconciled and the issue of adultery and connecting it to these um, uh, kind of unrestrained longings. And so let me introduce you to the Old Testament teaching that Jesus introduces us to. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 151, sorry, 5 verse 31, Jesus begins with the now familiar, it has been said. Jesus again is directing our attention to the Old Testament teaching. And so then he continues, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And in saying this, he's paraphrasing an Old Testament legal command that is given in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And what was happening was this. The Pharisees, to serve their own purposes, they had a very casual view of divorce, which means that they had a very casual view of marriage. Jewish law actually allowed divorce for almost any reason. Women were considered property, and men abused the the law by easily discarding them when they just wanted to move on. Divorcing was easy. And so Moses, in response to what was happening, wants to rein it in and provide some protection for the women who would be so easily abandoned. He wanted to control the chaos that resulted when a man would divorce his wife and just send her off for no reason at all, essentially leaving her with nothing. And so, it's important to note that in no way does Moses, in Deuteronomy 24, command divorce or endorse it or even permit it. He assumes that it's happening. And so he says, if you're going to um, divorce your wife, you need to give her a certificate that would ultimately allow her to then remarry and another man can then take care of her. And Moses thought that this law requiring a certificate would in fact help prevent divorce. Instead, they took it as permission, abused the practice, and as a result, used and abused the women. And the women were powerless and vulnerable as a result. And so that was the practice. And what the people heard that day from Jesus, they would have been nodding in agreement. Yeah, that's exactly what you hear. That's how you divorce. You just provide a certificate and you move on. Well, then Jesus describes what I believe is the heart of the issue. And he counters this Old Testament teaching with teaching of his own. And he says in verse 32, he again starts with, but I tell you, and so there's the contrast. And then he goes on to say, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's why I take you back to last week when Pastor Adam walked us through that and, and, and just remind you of the definition of adultery. It's a relational unfaithfulness. And Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue here because he's saying that divorcing ultimately involves you in adultery. That, therefore, this is an issue of unfaithfulness. Now, obviously, I could say a whole lot more about this, but if you just stop and think about what marriage requires, at its core, it's this. Faithfulness. Trust. Loyalty. And in marriage, a man and a woman exchange vows. They make a covenant agreement, and both partners pledge their loyalty and faithfulness. And it's this faithfulness that keeps them strongly committed to each other until death do us part. 
And when you have unfaithfulness, this covenant is broken. And so by divorcing, by breaking this covenant, it is by definition causing relational unfaithfulness. And this, friends, is the great tragedy. Because God designed marriage to be permanent and intimate. That's his plan. That's his best for humanity. And instead, when there's marital unfaithfulness and there's pain and there's betrayal and there's suffering and hurt, it breaks God's heart. And he wants us to avoid it. Listen to what God says about divorce through the prophet Malachi in chapter 2 and verse 16. I believe this is New Living Translation. He says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. The NIV translate that phrase where it says, to overwhelm her with cruelty, which is self-explanatory, and it, and it underscores the pain involved in this. The NIV translates says, that he does violence to the one that he should protect. That's our calling as husbands. To protect our wives. Not to abuse them or treat them with no dignity or respect. But did you notice? He says, guard your heart. Why? Because it's the longings of our heart that can get astray. And then he says, don't be unfaithful to your wife. So there it is again, this issue of unfaithfulness. And that is what is at the heart of broken relationships. And that is the very thing that we need to avoid. And like I said earlier, uh, there is no pain that compares to the brokenness of trust, the experience of betrayal, when one of the marriage partner feels one of the marriage partner feels just utterly alone and abandoned victimized there's nothing that hurts more and so hear this that is not god's best that is not god's desire and so what is the alternative what is jesus i believe inviting us to practice in here Because this is Jesus' answer to this brokenness of relationships. Is this. How might we be delivered from this vicious cycle of unfaithfulness and brokenness? And so here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus doesn't actually say what the pathway out of this cycle is. But in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in in the first, yeah, first Corinthians chapter 7... And if you want to do more study on this subject, uh, it's both before verse 10 and after verse 11, but just those two verses for this morning, we read this. Paul is saying this. He says, to the married, I give you this command. And then he puts this little parenthetical statement. He says, not I, but the Lord. He says, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, did you notice that Paul saying this commandment isn't his own, but that it belongs to Jesus? 
He doesn't even own it. He says, this isn't me. This is, this is from the Lord. This is the Lord's teaching. This is Jesus' teaching. And so he presents what he's about to say as coming from Jesus. And what is the command? Be reconciled. And Doesn't that just make total sense? I mean, if relational unfaithfulness threatens to break the relationship, wouldn't a coming together be a better way forward? And if you go back to Jesus' teaching on anger, which can be the experience of some in the context of marriage, what was the practice Jesus taught there? Again, go and be reconciled. So couldn't that apply to our marriages as well? Go to your wife and be reconciled. Go to your husband and be reconciled. At this point, uh, it's, it's not even kind of the physical act of marital unfaithfulness that I'm thinking of. Although it might be that, because sometimes it is one major act, and, and the whole thing can just fall to pieces. But that's not usually the case. What it usually is, it's that all of these unresolved conflicts over time haven't been dealt with, and they result in a buildup of resentment the angry outbursts that go unchecked, the hurts that haven't been forgiven and healed. Friends, you and I know this. Divorce doesn't just happen. It's not sudden. It usually is not surprising. At least it shouldn't be. We know instinctively when things aren't right in our relationships. And when that relationship is fractured... It's because we have allowed relatively small issues just to add up over time. Hurtful behaviors that go unaddressed and anger and resentment builds and boils over and the results are devastating. Sometimes it just goes too far and reconciliation is not possible. Divorce happens. But the point is this. Some divorces don't need to happen. There's something called grace. And when those are present, reconciliation is possible. Coming together again is possible. And even if it isn't, there is still grace and forgiveness. You see, reconciliation is what I believe Jesus is teaching as the transforming initiative that can break the cycle of unfaithfulness and it can prevent divorce. You see, we can't just look for a new relationship without trying to heal the one that we are in. And we should always first try to be reconciled. And honestly, my experience has been that too often marriages go so far down the road leading to to divorce that it's often very difficult to turn back from it. And what pains me the most is that by the time a couple decides to actually get help or to try to make it work, it's often already too late because years of resentment have been allowed to just, like a cancer, destroy that relationship. In the book, Kingdom Ethics, Following Jesus in Contemporary Context, The authors David Gushy and Glenn Stassen write this. Reconciliation does not happen by itself. 
It is the end product of the cycle of peacemaking that Jesus teaches throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Mount. Acknowledging that we are trapped in a sinful pattern. That's that vicious cycle. Seeking to participate in God's gracious deliverance. Taking the initiative to go to the other. Seeking reconciliation. Refusing to take vengeance. Affirming the other's valid interests. Repenting rather than judging. Forgiving rather than withholding forgiveness. Praying for the adversary. And above all and in all, loving. Goes on to say, these steps are perhaps nowhere more applicable than in the marriage relationship. We think Jesus taught that husbands and wives should take initiatives such as these to make peace with one another, and this teaching is recorded here. All these steps require spouses to hang in there with each other during hard times and not to see escape through a quick new relationship. And you know what? Reconciliation is necessary in all relationships from time to time. And so how do we practice reconciliation? Whether it's with our spouse, a close friend, maybe a roommate. The practice of reconciliation is critical. Because I believe that if we take Jesus' teaching as a whole, when we're living the life that Jesus describes for us in the Sermon on the Mount then the emphasis is not, as one commentator writes, on legalistic arguments about when a divorce is or is not tragically necessary or justified. The emphasis is on ways to make peace. Because rarely is this a black and white issue, and sometimes that's exactly what we want. We want these answers so that we can somehow make sense of the chaos. But I think Jesus is inviting us in to living a life of reconciliation, that it becomes a way of life for us. And so how do we make peace and reconciliation a way of life? Let me give you a few rapid-fire steps here. And some of this is based on Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. We read that passage often, and maybe it says church discipline or something like that. We just ignore it. But think about the practical application in all relationships, especially husbands and wives. Listen to this. Number one, I think we start with examining ourselves. We have to examine ourselves first. So we pray as the psalmist did in Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And why is that so important? Because we need to find out what is going on with us, right? When I preached on anger a couple weeks ago, I said, we have to ask that question. Why am I so angry? And it might reveal some hurt and some bitterness, some things that we didn't even know, some things that are deep. But if we examine ourselves and God reveals something in our lives, the way we've treated our spouse, guess what? Step number two, confession. Personal confession should be a regular practice of Christians. We should should begin every prayer. God, search my heart. Confess any sin that he reveals. And then go and be reconciled in our relationships. That is so critical. So step number three. Sometimes then we're called to overlook and forbear. Or be patient. 
Now, to overlook means to cover with love and release the offender from the harm or the hurt caused by the offense. Because sometimes, friends, let's be honest, we can get sometimes maybe a little too touchy, a little too easily offended. And Colossians 3, verse 13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive, he says, as the Lord forgave. So, do you see these first three? I, I, like, we examine ourselves before God. We confess what he reveals to us. We bring those things that are, that are eating up inside of us a little bit. And we ask God, is this something that maybe I need to just overlook and forbear? Is this an area where I need to extend some patience in? I don't have this, and I didn't ask for permission, and now Tina's going to roll her eyes and go, oh, where did you go? But you know what? Tina has forbeared and overlooked a pattern in my life for probably our entire married life. Getting home late for dinner. And it's disrespectful. And sometimes she just, you know, she sits down with the kids and they eat. And I miss that time with my family. That's on me. Do you understand that? I mean, it's a little thing, but 25 years of that, you get a little tired of it. So pray for Tina, because <laughs> she has to put up with that. But friends, how much pain and sorrow could we, could we avoid if two people in a relationship just did these first things regularly? Examined ourselves, confessed those things to God, considered those things that we might need to overlook and forbear. I mean, we should all be doing those all the time, right? To have this posture of humility and repentance and then exercise forgiveness when we need to. To understand the value of truly saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and I am going to turn away from that. And then having the other person extend to us forgiveness? Friends, that's huge. Well, but sometimes there are things that you can't overlook and forbear because they deep, they hurt deeply. And that leads to my number fourth step is just this private conversation. Matthew 18, verse 15 is if your brother or sister sins against you, go and show them their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. And this summer, as I was doing some premarital counseling with one of the couples that I officiated their wedding, um, <clears throat> I realized, I just, this statement came out, and it struck me as just pretty profound, and I don't come up with this very often, so I'm just going to, you know, share this with you out of, <laughs> um, and, and I just said, you know, before your husband and wife, your brother and sister in Christ. And we talked about what that means. And, and so, if you take Matthew 18, verse 15, if your husband or wife sins against you, go and show him or her their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. He's referring 
to reconciliation. And so if you have been hurt, something, some, some wound, you need to feel the freedom and the responsibility, really, according even to this word, to say, we need to talk. Do you ever have those conversations? We need to talk. But if we go in a spirit of love and humility, because we've done the first three things, and have an attempt at a loving conversation, when sometimes the most loving thing that we can say to our partner is this, you hurt me when, and you explain the situation. And I get maybe many times, especially men, I'm dense. Sorry, I don't want to paint all the men, but we miss it sometimes. And your spouse will see things in you that you don't see yourself. And if your spouse has a soft heart that's orientated towards Jesus, and they respond by listening and understanding and saying sorry, then you've won them over. You've come together. You've been reconciled. And if you're on the receiving end, right? The spouse is seeing things that we don't see ourselves. And this is why it's so important, and I should have said this at the beginning, that all of these steps, these are, these are normal practices of a Christian. And so that's important to understand that in this context. Because a non-Christian is maybe not going to have a soft heart. They're maybe not going to be oriented to Jesus. And sometimes you have Christians who say those things, but they're actually not orientated toward Jesus anyways. And that's another issue. But if you have this private conversation, where I believe many marriages get it right at this point, but sometimes we get it wrong. So what do we do? We just... I think we get caught in this thing where we just, we just can't resolve it, so we just leave it, and next month it happens again, and we can't resolve it, and we just, we just let it go unaddressed. And that is not what Jesus says in Matthew 18. And so here's the fifth step. Think about this. There's a conversation now, not private, but with witnesses present. And the witnesses aren't there to be an advocate. They're not there to take sides and, and to... to you know, vouch or judge on one or the other, but they're there for two reasons. One is, is there a spirit of gentleness on the one doing the confronting? Are we coming with that position of humility? And two, is the person being confronted listening and agreeing? Are they hearing what is being said? And you might just have to say, you know what? No, that's, that's not what I heard. That's not what they said. But maybe you come to a place where you say, well, what do we then need to do to make it right? And you can help a couple on a pathway of reconciliation. I mean, honestly, can you imagine if we did this with some of our closest friends? If you have an issue that continually surfaces in your marriage and you just say, would you guys come over? We've got to talk about something. And and we go and they just say, listen, this is an ongoing issue in our relationship. And this is what we need to try to work out. Can you imagine the authenticity of that and the realness of that? Sometimes it requires maybe a counselor to be that witness. 
And Matthew 18 goes on, I'm not going to get into it, into other steps that really involve getting more and more people involved. Mature people, godly people, overseers in a church to discern together a pathway forward. And ultimately, all of it is a call to repentance and restitution and rebuilding trust when trust has been broken. Friends, it can be done. Coming together, not moving further apart. I think it's fitting today that we gather around the Lord's table. And I'm going to invite those of you that are here this morning to take the cup that you received. And if you are at home uh, watching, I hope that you have the bread and the juice available as well. But I think it's significant because I want us to think about this. That the struggle with sin is real for us. That we all go astray. We all fall out of alignment with God. And the one thing about communion is that it brings us back in alignment with God where we can come before him and be reconciled. Know that we've been made right. We've been credited with Christ's righteousness. There's nothing that we need to earn. It's all grace. It's all forgiveness. But we know when our heart isn't right. And so we can come with these elements and say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And know the forgiveness of one another. Something that struck me is how powerful would it be if husbands and wives shared communion together on a regular basis? This isn't a ritual that we do in church. This is the breaking of these of bread and the drinking of a cup in recognition of what Jesus has done for us. And so we hold hands together at the foot of the cross, not you know, lording it over someone else, but recognizing that we're all in need of grace and forgiveness. That's what this represents. Maybe that's a practice that you want to try in your relationship. And I know for some of you it's a challenge. Maybe your spouse isn't a believing spouse or they're not at that place. Just keep praying for them. Invite others to pray with you. Friends, we're brothers and sisters in Christ first. And this is a reminder that we all stand in need of grace. Right? So take the bread. Pull off that. Oh, these things are awkward, aren't they? Already getting to the cup. And remember these instructions. And again, the Apostle Paul, he says, I received this from the Lord. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we do give you thanks. We give you thanks that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us so that we could be reconciled to you. 
Father, your word throughout says that we should forgive as we've been forgiven. And I pray that when we think of this in the context of reconciliation, in the context of marriage, oh God, give us strength and courage to live the life that you lay out for us. May we walk as brothers and sisters, humbly before you and one another, sharing a mutual respect and love and care, taking us back to that day where we stood before witnesses and made the vows that we made. Father, strengthen those marriages today. And Father, for those that are wrestling right now, I pray that you would give them courage to walk a difficult road. And Father, that all of us, wherever we find ourselves or wherever we may land, that we would know your grace and forgiveness in abundance and overflowing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Lord.